<coughs> I want to say one or two words um, of explanation before we uh, read the scriptures. The, the subject that we're going to be dealing with in this next week, God willing, uh, used to be very common currency amongst God's people. And uh, there is, in many quarters today, a neglect of the Old Testament scriptures. And partially, partially, that's because so-called typical teaching, seeing in the Old Testament a picture that illustrates something in the New Testament, sadly in days past, typical teaching sometimes was just used in an excessive kind of a way. Brethren got a little bit carried away with their own imaginations. Uh, and so, talking to some young folk just uh, a week or two ago, I asked, had they ever read these kind of scriptures? We were actually talking about Leviticus. Uh, and they said, no, they never read them. They thought that they were the province of older men who, by some curious magic, could, could see a picture in these verses that they couldn't. And uh, some of them thought that this was the province of very serious students of the Bible, uh, and others thought it was just the dreams of older men seeing things that weren't actually there. So is a study of the tabernacle, is it really going to be of practical use to me as a Christian today? Because ultimately, especially younger believers, they say, well, we want something practical. We want something to help us live our Christian lives. But ultimately, all practice has to be based on doctrine. So uh, we teach the doctrine to establish the practice, but really is it worth spending time on almonds on a lampstand or this little piece of furniture here or that little quirk there? Is, that, is it not all a bit fanciful? Is there not something better that we could be spending our time on? <coughs> so, so to answer that kind of question, let's for a moment just stand back from our Bible and say, what would God have us concentrate on? Now, our Old Testament, for round figures, covers a period of 4,000 years. And the first half of that time period, the Spirit of God is compressed into the first 11 chapters of your Bible. Genesis 1 to 11, the first half of all Old Testament history. So that the Spirit of God is saying, now I want you to take a broad view here. I want you to see in these 11 chapters how God has dealt with the world of men over 2,000 years. And when you think that two of those chapters are about creation, the third is about the fall, the fourth is about what man looks like in his fallen condition, chapter 4, and then chapter 5 exposes the devil's lie, people die. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And then chapters 6, 7, 8 and 9, four chapters out of the 11, are all about the global flood. Chapter 10 is about why, or how God divided men into nations and divided the world into parts. Tectonic plates spread, the, the formation of the continents. And chapter 11 explains why he did it, because of man's impiety at Babel. That's, the, that's all the Spirit of God has recorded about 2,000 years of Earth's history. But then when you come to Exodus chapter 19, 
But we won't take the time to go over the intervening chapters. When you come to Exodus chapter 19, that's where Israel as a nation, having been brought out of Egypt, comes to Sinai. And God's going to establish a covenant with them there. It's that old covenant, the Old Testament, the Sinaitic covenant. And he's brought them there to make this contract with them. And from Exodus chapter 19, right the way through to Numbers chapter 10 and verse 10, now that's about 57 or 58 chapters of your Bible, those chapters cover 11 months and 6 days of Israel's history. 2,000 years compressed into 11 chapters, 11 months and 6 days put into 57 or 58 chapters. The book of Leviticus itself just covers one month of Israel's history. You can check that out by looking at the dates at the end of Exodus and the beginning of the book of Numbers. So you see the timeline of your Bible expands and compresses. And the only conclusion we would sensibly come to is that sometimes the Holy Spirit, we speak reverently, sometimes the Holy Spirit is saying, I want you to stand back and use the telescope. And at other times he says, I want you to come in close and use the microscope. Now, now these chapters that we're going to be reading from, <clears throat> chapters that concern the giving of the law, the building of the tabernacle, the establishment of the sacrificial system, the priesthood that would officiate over the whole thing, all these things are of such importance to teach us the mind and the ways of God that the Spirit of God has expanded the space in the Bible for us to look at things in fairly minute detail. So there's an immediate indication that he would have us study these things. Then when you think that the first uh, idea about the tabernacle, uh, it's recorded here in, verse, uh, in chapter 25 of Exodus. Let's just read it. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they may bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly, with his heart ye shall take my offering, and this is the offering which ye shall take of them, gold, silver, and brass, and blue, and purple, and scarlet, and fine linen, and goat's hair, and ram skins dyed red, and badger skins, and shittim wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil, and for sweet incense, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod, and in the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. Here's the purpose of it all. Here's the purpose of it all. That the God who saw man estranged from him in Genesis 3 because of his disobedience is now showing us how he will work to bring man back into fellowship with himself. See, when we think of the fall, we often major on what man lost, what Adam lost, what we lost. But don't forget what God lost in the fall. God made man to be fruitful. That doesn't just mean to have offspring. It means that there should have been fruit for God. The first sin was man stealing fruit that belonged to God. And God has been robbed of fruit because of the fall ever since. And in a way that I can't understand, let alone explain, 
God also was robbed of the joy of fellowship with his creature. When God came and he spoke and he walked with Adam in the cool of the day and they had fellowship one with the other, evidently that was pleasurable to God as well as pleasurable to Adam. And that was lost when Adam sinned. And so here is the first, shall we say, the first formal step that God is taking to teach us how he will see that fellowship restored. That I may dwell among them. Brethren and sisters, there cannot be for man a higher privilege on earth than enjoying fellowship with divine persons. There cannot be a higher privilege than that. And, and God is showing us how he's going to make that possible. So, he could simply have said to the people of Israel, through Moses and Aaron, he could have said, Moses, say to the people of Israel, in the morning, get up with the sunset, uh, sunrise, get up with the sunrise, look to the east, uh, and watch this. Again, I'm not being irreverent, I'm, I'm just saying this is what God could have done. And while you're looking eastwards... There's a tabernacle. God, see, that, that's where I'm going to dwell among you. But he didn't do it that way. He said, now this is a place that you are going to make so that I can dwell there. I want these things to, to really settle in our hearts because they're the key to understanding the things that God willing will go through next week. The desire in the divine heart for his people to do a work that would enable him to dwell among them so that mutually fellowship could be shared. Remember, God is speaking to a redeemed people. This isn't so much about how a sinner is brought to Christ. Although there will be pictures of that in the thing. This is about how a redeemed people they knew redemption in Exodus chapter 12, the Passover night. That's how they were in picture delivered from under the judgment of God. It's a picture of you and I knowing the forgiveness of our sins because Christ has died for us. That's the picture in that sacrificial lamb, isn't it? Christ died for me. But you see, when they woke the morning after the Passover, where were they? Still in Egypt. Still in the land of bondage. Pharaoh was still their master. So another work had to be done. It's part of the one work of redemption, but where the one part in Exodus 12 is a picture of Christ's death for you and me, when God brought his people out of Egypt through the Red Sea in chapter 14, that was a picture not of Christ's death for me, but of my death with Christ. See the difference? That, that's what's broken the power of sin as my master. And so many Christians, they enjoy the truth that Christ has died for them, but they don't go on to prove the truth that they have died with Christ. It's the end of self. And if any man is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, he's a new creature. All things passed away, all things become new. New life in Christ. And here's a people now, they're never going to be back in Egypt again. They're in the wilderness, and it's there in the wilderness that God says to this redeemed people, you and I are going to enjoy fellowship together. 
The blueprint will be mine and the work will be yours. You will work to my blueprint so that we can enjoy fellowship together. And for the first time, the house of God was going to take on physical form. This would be God's house. Now we've been introduced to that truth in Genesis chapter 28. Remember when Jacob was there at Bethel, which means house of God. And, and where Jacob was on his journey uh, to Haran, uh, he had that remarkable dream of a way cast up to heaven. The angels ascending and descending. And when he awoke from that dream, remember he said, surely this is a dreadful place. This is an awesome place. And if we could have drawn near and said, why do you say that, Jacob? What makes this place so special? He'd say, well, this is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And we would look a bit puzzled and say, Jacob, we've missed something. What's the house of God? There's nothing here. Surely this is the house of God. But there isn't anything here, Jacob. And he would say, no, did you not hear what I said first? He said, God is in this place. And I knew it not. And there's, there's the biblical teaching of the fundamental principle of the house of God is the presence of God. God's there. It didn't need a physical form. It didn't need a grand building or a cathedral or even a gospel hall. There was nothing there. But Jacob said there is the presence of God. And that constitutes this place, the house of God, but also the gate of heaven. And the gate of anywhere in scripture speaks about the administration of the place. Remember in Ruth 4 how uh, Boaz goes to the elders who are sitting in the gate to finalize arrangements concerning his marriage to Ruth. Uh, Lot, he sat in the gate of Sodom. It's the place where the elders sat. It's the place where administration was conducted. So now Jacob says the house of God is characterized by the divine presence and by the administration of heaven being observed. Divine presence, divine order, those are the founding principles of God's house. And we'll see that in the tabernacle. And of course, we mustn't miss the practical truth that makes this relevant, that when Paul wrote to Timothy in Ephesus, he said, Now these things write I unto you, hoping to come unto you shortly, but if I tarry, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in house of God, which is church of the living God, pillar and ground of the truth. So God's house the principles of which are seen in Genesis 28 first, takes its first physical form in the shape of the tabernacle. It will later take another physical form in Solomon's temple. And those temple structures, the one that was destroyed by Solomon's temple, destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the next one built by Zerubbabel, Joshua, the remnant who came up from Babylon, uh, and later changed by Herod, and later destroyed in AD 70. That's all gone. What's the form of God's house today? It's the church. With the capital C. Every believer, saved by God's grace, 
since the day of Pentecost and up until the Lord comes to take the church home, the church which is his body is God's house. But Paul is showing Timothy that every local company of Christians gathered in accordance with New Testament principle is house of God in character. It takes its character locally from the whole thing of which it is a part. And so it is totally relevant for us today who are members not only of the body of Christ but we are also in that house of God, the spiritual house which the church makes up but also we're responsible to see that in every local company the presence of God is acknowledged and the order of heaven is obeyed. The principles of Genesis 28 through the tabernacle, through the temple, into the church, those principles don't change because God doesn't change and they're his principles and it's his house. So the form changes but the principles don't and that's why it's relevant for us to look at these things. When I was a boy, uh, I was sent to bed pretty early most nights and um, the, the one great blessing was that the bedroom was pretty much filled with books. Loads of books. Uh, and as a young boy, I can remember, you'd, you'd get stuck into one of these big old hardback books. And uh, I was reading, I think it was The Coral Island by R.M. Ballantyne. So you're reading about this dashing sea captain and you're reading about this fellow and that fellow and you're trying to form pictures in your mind. And then you turn the page and here was a full page colour illustration. The ship had been wrecked and there was the desert island, there was the reef, there was the boat, there, there were the men and suddenly everything just, whoo, just all became alive because there was this fantastic illustration that brought together all the words that you'd read and now you'd got a firm picture in your mind that cemented the whole thing. Well now, young brothers and sisters particularly, if you haven't explored it yet, that's your Old Testament. Particularly the, the Pentateuch, the five books that commence our Bibles, and the Spirit of God has given us rich illustrations to help us understand the doctrine of the New Testament. We're not going back into law or anything like that. What we're doing is we're going back to pictures that the Spirit of God has given us to illustrate timeless divine principles. And the principles upon which Israel would enjoy fellowship with God in the tabernacle are exactly the same principles upon which we must enjoy fellowship with God today. So much then for the relevance of what we have read. I want to interest you for a few moments in how the tabernacle was provided for. Oftentimes, a bit like believers who read the book of Revelation and get bored straight into the detail and, and suddenly get an awful fankle about the whole thing. Again, we just stand back for a moment and we say, now here's, here's a nation of people all baptised unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea according to 1 Corinthians 10 and, and they've come through the Red Sea they are in the wilderness. They've come out hastily and they've come out carrying just what they can really. There's no record, as far as I know, of them using any wagons or anything like that. They certainly carried their needing troughs. It seemed they came out in haste. They, they came out with what they could carry. 
So when God said through Moses, Speak unto the children of Israel that they bring me an offering, this is the offering which you shall take of them, gold, silver, brass, blue, purple, scarlet, fine linen, goat's hair, and you immediately see the vast variety of materials which God is inviting them to give. Where did it all come from? Well, there's only one answer to that, isn't it? It all came from Egypt. And we're not surprised by that, because in chapter 3 of Exodus, chapter 11, chapter 12, three times over, God says to his people, I'm going to spoil the Egyptians. I'm going to see to it that they give you their wealth. I love to sit and imagine that. Imagine a little Hebrew girl, uh, and uh, she's slave to an Egyptian mistress, and everybody knows something mighty is going to happen because the plagues have been unfolding. And then on this particular day, the young girl goes in and, and says, I know, with divinely given boldness, she says, My lady, I really admire that necklace you're wearing. And instead of being rebuked and punished, to her amazement, the woman says, I tell you what, you have it. Uh, and, and just wait there a moment because I've got more like that upstairs and she would come down with all the jewellery and the gold and everything else and put it all in the hands of that wee girl. Must have happened something like that, didn't it? And God said, now, now the good authorised Bible, uh, authorised version says, you will borrow these things. Now there's no thought that, the, that this was a, a shady deal. It wasn't that they pretended to borrow them, never intended to give them back. The thought is simply that, that God would put it into the hearts of the Egyptians to give all this. Now, now really, it was payment for the years of slavery of the children of Israel. And it was also God's method of spoiling the Egyptians of what was most precious to them. So when the children of Israel came through the Red Sea, they were laden with gold and silver and precious stones and wooden ornaments and all kinds of drapes and, and all the things that God knew would be needed to build him a house in the wilderness. And then once it was all in the wilderness, the word went out to the people and the condition was this. Speak unto the children of Israel that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly, with his heart, ye shall take my offering. So God didn't use his people as pack horses just to bring all this stuff out of Egypt. It was theirs. Fully, legitimately theirs. In that sense, they could do with it what they wished. And God said, now what I want... If, if the whole prospect of building a house so that I can dwell among my people, if that whole prospect warms your heart, if you've got a heart that's been really touched and deeply impressed by, by the redemptive power of your God in bringing you out from under judgment on Passover night and bringing you out through the Red Sea. If you've got hearts that have been deeply touched by the goodness of God to you and if that would make you willingly give some of your precious things so that I can dwell among you, then I'll accept it. There was no demand. 
This was the compulsion of love. It was the compulsion of an appreciation of the work of a redeeming God. And God said, if you've got that appreciation, you can donate to my house. My, what a lovely illustration. Have you ever read through Romans 12? This is the illustration of Romans 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. What's he talking about? He's talking about those wonderful truths of chapters 1 to 8 of the Roman epistle. All the means by which a righteous God has found a way in which he can declare us to be righteous. So from condemnation, through salvation, justification, sanctification, ultimately with a view to glorification. All these things are the mercies of God in chapters 1 to 8. And Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by those mercies, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your intelligent service. No compulsion, other than the compulsion of love from a, a redeemed heart, that acknowledging everything I am and have is by the grace of God and through the work of Christ, there is nothing, it is supposed, there is nothing that the compulsion of love would hold back from him. If this is how the house of God was provided for in the wilderness, it's how the house of God is provided for today. In the sense that, when you think of all that the Egyptian system, that is the world as it represents men in bondage to Satan, men in his power, men in need of God's salvation, that godless world out there from which we have been saved by grace, that godless system has nevertheless provided every one of us with abundant wealth. I'm not just talking about folding money. Education. Skills. Everything that makes you, may I put it like this, the package that you are. The person you are, the person whom God has saved, the person who now, out of a loving heart, willingly and intelligently submits everything to the Lordship of Christ. Now please, please, let me be very clear. God never wants us to do anything for him in the energy of the flesh. That's not what we're talking about. But what we are talking about is that everything that you and I have been furnished with, we have the opportunity of presenting it all on the altar of sacrifice for Christ. Letting him use it. Don't we sing it? Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Don't we sing about take my mind, take my hands? This is the truth of it. So God said, now, now, now my desire is to have fellowship with you. And, and when we build the place where that fellowship will be centered, where I will meet and speak with you, the blueprint will be mine, but I want you to provide the material. But only if you've got a willing heart, only if you've got a deep appreciation of what it means to be redeemed. Otherwise, everything you brought out is yours. You can do with it as you wish. What's my spiritual ambition? What's yours? Importantly, what's our ambition for our young ones? 
mums and dads, grandparents. Well, uh, th- there's a great move to, to, to promote our children so that they achieve what the children of Egypt achieve. And we're not setting any store on ignorance. We're not saying it's a good thing to be running around barefoot and ignorant. But ultimately, our aims and our ambitions should be different from that. Surely as parents, as grandparents, we want to see those little ones first and foremost be something for God. Men and women of God. Teaching them things in that way. Uh, And I do get alarmed when you find that folks aren't coming out to the meeting because that's the night they're sending their kids to the ballet classes or some martial arts class or something like that. And so they can't be out at the meeting. And you think, hang on, something's badly wrong here. What are we training our little ones for? So that they can blend in fully in this world? Or are we seeking to train them to be men and women of God and to go in for things that are eternal? That's how the tabernacle was provided for. By people whose hearts were stirred up. And whatever they had, they brought God didn't expect someone who didn't have any gold to bring gold. And notice he put equal value on someone who brought gold, someone who brought a little bit of oil for the light, some brought spices, some brought little wooden things that would become the pegs that would keep the guy ropes, that would keep the poles, that would stop the whole thing from falling over. You've heard this before. But God put equal store and had equal pleasure in what every individual brought. They brought what they had, they brought what they could, and they brought it with a willing heart. And the wonderful thing is, when you come to chapter 35 and read about it, is that they brought more than could be handled. There was a day when Moses had to go out to the people, and he had to say, stop giving! You're doing too much. (laughs) That'd be a great elders' meeting. Well, that was the decision, wasn't it? We're going to have to speak to this assembly, you know. They're all doing far too much. Well, that was the very happy problem they had in the provision of the tabernacle. But then you see, <clears throat> that great mountain of material that had been freely donated by a people touched in their hearts with the redemptive work of their God that all had to be fashioned. What had been provided had to be prepared. Uh, And this would bring you to the truth uh, toward the end of chapter 35 and into chapter 36. We'll just take a quick look there, please. Chapter 35, first of all. Verse 29 of chapter 35. The children of Israel brought a willing offering unto the Lord, every man and woman whose heart made them willing to bring for all manner of work which the Lord had commanded to be made by the hand of Moses. And Moses said unto the children of Israel, See, the Lord hath called by name Bezaleel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, And he hath filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, and in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship, and to devise curious works, to work in gold and in silver and in brass, 
and in the cutting of stones to set them, and in carving of wood to make any manner of cunning work. And he hath put in his heart that he may teach, both he and Aholiab, the son of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan. Them hath he filled with wisdom of heart to work all manner of work, of the engraver, and of the cunning workman, and of the embroiderer, in blue and in purple, in scarlet and in fine linen, and of the weaver, even of them that do any work, and of those that devise cunning work. Then wrought Bezaleel and Aholiab, and every wise-hearted man in whom the Lord put wisdom and understanding to know how to work all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary according to all that the Lord had commanded. Now, isn't it wonderful that, that once this great heap of material had been provided and it had to be fashioned, that God then recognised that what he wanted his people to do was beyond their capability. So in order that that material might be prepared in the way that God wanted it, he supernaturally gifted certain men to do what they otherwise would never have been able to do. It must have been marvellous to watch them. Men who at the same time were skilled in, in the fashioning of gold. You imagine build, uh, beating out the mercy seat with its two cherubim, all out of one piece of gold. Or the embroidered work, or, or the, 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 work of the, uh, the woodwork of the place. He skilled them in all of these things. They couldn't do it before, and suddenly they could. And here you have a picture of the truth, not now of Romans 12, but of 1 Corinthians 12. For in 1 Corinthians 12, the early church, before they had a New Testament, and before the full, uh, uh, the full body of truth concerning the church had been given through Paul, they still had to function. How would you function in a local assembly without a New Testament? Well, God gave them supernaturally ability by the Holy Spirit. You have those nine particular uh, uh, gifts given in 1 Corinthians 12, supernatural gifts given by the Spirit of God, exactly as he gave supernatural ability to Aholiab and Bezalel, he gave supernatural ability to those early Christians. It was a one-off. Once Aholiab and Bezalel had fashioned that material into all the fabric and the furniture and the structure of the tabernacle, there was no further need of that. And just in the same way in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the gifts of the Holy Spirit in that chapter were for the early days, the infancy of the church, so that it could function against the day that that which is perfect, the complete revelation of church truth, once it had been given and published, there was no further need of those supernatural gifts. The giving in Romans 12 is Godward. The response of a heart that appreciates the mercies of God. The giving, the gifts of 1 Corinthians 12, the Holy Spirit giving those gifts supernaturally, illustrated in the preparation of the fabric of the tabernacle. Must have been wonderful to watch. But once it had been done, no further need of it. But then finally and quickly, what had been provided for and what had been prepared in such a wonderful way wasn't intended to be a museum or a monument. It was intended to be a functioning place. It was God's house. 
And so in order for that which had been provided for and prepared in such a wonderful way, in order that it might function, then its, uh, its um, ordering and its preservation was put into the hands of men. For that we'll just quickly refer to Numbers in chapter 3, please. Although you're turning past Leviticus and you're into the book of Numbers, remember you're still in that period of 11 months and 6 days. This is all happening quite fast in the experience of the nation. And when you come to Numbers chapter 3, and verse 5, The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and present them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister unto him. And they shall keep his charge and the charge of the whole congregation before the tabernacle of the congregation to do the service of the tabernacle. And they shall keep all the instruments of the tabernacle of the congregation and the charge of the children of Israel to do the service of the tabernacle. And thou shalt give the Levites unto Aaron and to his sons. They are wholly given unto him out of the children of Israel. Lots here really to interest us. We haven't time to go into it all tonight. But I suppose the first thing that would interest us is that God said to Moses and Aaron, he spoke unto Moses, and he said, bring the tribe of Levi near and present them before Aaron the priest. I am going to give to Aaron and to his sons, I'm going to give them a tribe. I'm going to give them a gift. I'm going to give them a gift of men. The men are the gift here in Numbers chapter 3. And I'm going to give this gift of the tribe of Levi to Aaron and his sons so that they may keep charge of the whole congregation and of all the things to do with the tabernacle. I think out of all the sons of, Le uh, of Jacob, if we were asked who we would least choose to look after God's people and God's things, it would have been Levi. After all, their own father had said of him, don't go into his company. Levi's a vicious man. He's a cruel man. Simeon and Levi, they, they, they keep instruments of cruelty in their habitation. They delight in it. These are violent, unruly men. Angry men. That's their own father said that of them. And God says, bring the tribe of Levi near and I'm going to give them charge over the things that are precious to me. Isn't it wonderful what grace can do, isn't it? Mm. Nothing but the grace of God otherwise could have done that. And they're going to be given the charge. Now what are we learning? We're learning now the truth of Ephesians 4. Romans 12, there's gifts in that chapter, they're Godward, the things that we would present in priestly capacity to God out of an appreciation of his mercies. The way in which the, the things were prepared is an illustration of 1 Corinthians 12 of how things were fashioned and, and prepared in the early days of the church. But when we come to Ephesians chapter 4, we're told that the way that the body is, is growing up into maturity 
is that the risen Christ has given gifts to the church and the gifts he has given are men. They are evangelists, shepherds and teachers. And he's given men to the church. Aaron and his sons are a picture here of Christ and the church together. And there's a gift given by God to Aaron and his sons, a gift of men, Levi and his sons. Levi had three sons. They were Gershon, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And if you would like to take the time to read on down through Numbers chapter 3, you'll see how everything was done in an orderly way. To, To Gershon and his sons were given the charge of everything of the tabernacle that was outward. Anything that could be seen from outside was the charge of Gershon. For Kohath, uh, to him and his sons was given the charge of everything inside, especially the furniture that was very precious to God that speaks of Christ and his work and ministry. And then to Mirari and his sons was given the charge to look after and to carry all the boards and the bars and the ropes and the things that make up the shape and structure of the tabernacle. What do we learn? That, that Gershon and all that could be known from the outside of the tabernacle is a picture of the evangelist. He takes divine things and presents them to a godless world. Anything that can be known through the power of the Spirit of God in the Gospel is made known by the evangelist. But Kohath, he looked after all the precious things within the tabernacle. And really, in many ways, that's the work of the shepherd, the pastor. Uh, We'll illustrate it very quickly in a moment. Merari looked after the boards and the bars, everything that gave shape and structure uh, to the tabernacle. That's the work of the teacher. Uh, And evangelist, pastor, teacher, that's Ephesians 4. Think how the first local assembly in the New Testament came into being. Not the church of Jerusalem, that wasn't typical. It was only made up of Jews. But the first typical, the first uh, representative local assembly made up of Jew and Gentile was in Acts chapter 11 in Antioch. We don't know how it came into being because the evangelists are unnamed. But we know that after the stoning of Stephen, there were people who went out and everywhere they went, they spoke about the Lord Jesus. And the result of that was an assembly of Christians in Antioch. And when news reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, they sent Barnabas to see what was going on. And when he saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all with purpose of heart to cleave to the Lord. That's the work of the pastor. That's the work of the shepherd. Cleave to the Lord. And very quickly Barnabas realized he couldn't take these believers much farther forward without them being taught. And so he went to Tarsus for to seek Saul and Saul came back with him and together they taught the believers and so the evangelist and the shepherd and the teacher all did their particular works to see that local assembly established. And that's what you have in that lovely picture in Numbers chapter 3. All to do with this quaint, curious structure called the tabernacle and God willing we'll be 
seeking with the Lord's help to learn further lessons from it through the week of teaching. We trust the Lord will bless it to us. Above all, we want to learn the lessons of how blessed we are in Christ ever to enjoy fellowship with divine persons. And to see how these things speak to us about Christ and his work, both in the past and the present. It's all there in these delightful illustrations. But tonight we've just been thinking about how is it provided for? How is it prepared? And how is it preserved? And they've all got their lessons for us in relation to the local assembly today. We trust God will bless his word. Shall we pray?